Boon Jong, Boon Joon Ho. I always say Boon Jong Ho, and it's Bong Joon Ho. Bong Joon Ho. So I always get that wrong. Now, um, he's a Korean director who's um, obviously very preeminent. Now, I've reviewed some of his films on this show, and probably the last three. Now, I was interested because The Host, which came out around 2006, I didn't think was very good. It got a lot of acclaim. It was a monster movie. It was supposed to be uh, a new kind of monster movie, um, uh, you know, Monster Attacks the City kind of movie with a lot of originality. I thought it was pretty tepid. I didn't find it very influential or interesting, and I didn't rate it very highly. But the following film, Snowpiercer, which was a mix of Western actors and Korean actors, um, that was amazing. I think that was my second favourite film of that year. Um, I thought that was fantastic. It was, um, again, like this film, it was a very socially conscious and social class conscious movie about capitalism, uh, social inequality and so on, where the metaphor was a train. All the people at the back of the train were being fed scraps and were the poor the middle class were in the middle and the upper class at the end were living a life of luxury and this train sped round the frozen tundra after we destroyed the earth and that was a brilliant film and he followed that up with a Netflix only release and that didn't get enough attention it was a brilliant film called Okja again he used some western actors but that was a much more Korean film Snowpiercer's broadly in English Tilda Swinton showed up and quite a few very prominent actors showed up. A lot of the dialogue in that was uh, was in English. But Okja, uh, the film about a, a little girl that um, gets given this giant pig uh, that grows to you know two elephants in size um, and finds out that the uh, farming industrial complex has plans for it once it's reached that size... And that was also, he's, he's one of the most political filmmakers out there. That was very much about the effects of industrial farming and how we treat animals and um, how, you know, global agribusiness and that kind of thing. Um, but again, a lot of brilliant films are being made on Netflix and not getting the level of attention they deserve. But it did get really good reviews when it came out. And then uh, Bong Joon-ho released Parasite last year. And Parasite was uh, one of the most acclaimed films on websites like Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes and so on. But it set a number of very interesting benchmarks. And one was beating my favourite of the year, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I would still rank as my number one film of the year. Um, it beat that for Best Screenplay, Best Director and Best Film. Not only the first foreign language film to win Best Picture, but it was also the first film to have qualified and won Best Foreign Language Film to have won Best Picture. Most people would have said that was impossible, and it hadn't, I don't think, in 90 years happened. And it has set a number of interesting benchmarks. It cost about 10 or 11 million US dollars to make, and it's gone past 200 million at the box office. Now, that's only about 80 million behind the film Solo, which was one of the Star Wars projects, which is pretty astonishing. In fact, it's astonishing that that film, which will probably be my second favourite film of the year behind Once and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a very sort of existential art film and a very socially, politically aware Korean film, 
have done more than half a billion dollars at the box office. What's going on? And I just saw on the news it's the first film in 15 years from Korea to have topped the Japanese box office. And obviously there's a lot of animosity dating back to World War II behaviour between the two countries. Um, and that's um, caused you know, a rejection of art from, from both countries. That, you, know, you don't watch Korean films in Japan, but this has become the first to go to number one for 15 years. Uh, and my thoughts on this film, which has been endlessly reviewed. Now, the setup, if you don't know, it's a, a poor family, a mum and a dad, and um, probably about 20-year-old children, a daughter and a son, live in squalor in these places in Korea, which are um, now famous. They're basically bunkers underneath shops and houses, and they were put in place during the uh, Korean War when they were worried that the uh, North Koreans were going to attack Seoul. And they were designed to hide from bombardment, and they were completely illegal to live in until the recent modern era. And what uh, Boon Joon-ho, I'll say it wrong every time, uh, what Boon Joon-ho did was highlight the fact that Korean society has changed dramatically to the point where there's an awful lot of people that are struggling to live. Same all over the world in our capitalist societies. We've seen the quality of life and standard of living and gaps in inequality in Australia and the UK rise dramatically with subsequent right-wing governments uh, to the point where people are desperate. Um, and in Korea as well, they have this sort of, you know, proud face of, of being this huge global success story, which they have been over recent decades, and becoming one of the world's preeminent centres of technology and so on. But that there's this huge underclass of people living in these squalid things that weren't even habitable. They weren't supposed... It was actually illegal to rent them until they changed the law in the last few decades. And this family live there and they're struggling, but they're happy. And the mother's a bit of a bugger. Um, they, we, we join the family when they're sort of um, folding up pizza boxes. Excuse me. And she's um, extremely rude to the person employing them. And uh, they've all got their own sort of mindsets. The dad's sort of blissfully unaware of anything and he just goes about his business and doesn't care. And then the son has a friend who's very well-to-do. And it seems um, what's happening is the, one of the biggest effects of neoliberal economics on their own country has been the erosion of the middle class to the extent where people are either very poor or very wealthy. And he's got a very wealthy friend that's a university student off to study in you know, overseas universities like we've turned all of our education system into a money-making scheme by um, basically taking money from foreign students. So... He's teaching English to this very wealthy young woman who lives in a, a very posh home, like ridiculously wealthy, um, and he loves her. So he wants to get his friend, who's from the poor family, to who's, who's actually very intelligent and can speak fluent English. He wants him to teach English to this girl so that he doesn't have to get one of his college friends who will crack onto this girl while he's away and steal his woman of the future big mistake mate <laughs> really really big mistake there's um, a lack of morality in the family let's say that um so anyway this kid goes and he he, he lies uh, the daughter proves to be very good at graphic art 
And that's one thing that comes through is how resilient and how intelligent and how capable the family at the bottom of the ladder actually are. And she's very good at um, designing fake paperwork so that the son can go to this rich family and show them all of his diplomas and everything. Uh, and um, he goes and gets this job teaching the daughter English and immediately cracks onto her. And they um, basically the mom is this beautiful but very ditzy woman, young woman, and the daughter's probably, I guess, in her late teens or maybe a little bit younger. And the mum must be in her mid-30s, very beautiful, but completely dumb and oblivious to everything and hires help to do absolutely every chore in the house, including teaching her children everything, uh, especially English. And the son spots an opening here to get his sister in to teach the younger child art. And you can you can guess the first half of the movie because they're basically trying to get all of the family from the poor family working for the rich family so the dad ends up they end up getting the driver the sack these are very immoral people in the way they go about it she hides her panties in the car so the driver gets a sack from picking up girls and using the car as his little sex pen um, and then they get the mum in as the housewife after they manage to get the housewife long-standing master of the house they get her sacked as well and I think most people understand the setup. Basically, a poor family ingratiating themselves into a wealthy family by lying about everything and taking over the roles. And I think a good unspoken point the film deliberately makes is that they do all of these roles perfectly well. So the idea that, you know, I think that's one of the ideas that the film throws up is that the girl says when she's um, racing the child's art, she just Googles everything. And she can do just as good a job as the normal art teacher. The dad's the driver and can do, you know, they've got global sat-nav. There's nothing to most of these roles. And the idea that they have to have all of this, these qualifications and experience to do this work for this family is shown to be um, a complete misnomer. And from then on, the film, it... it, it honestly if i get there i'll I'll review uncut gems that uncut gems is the most stressful and uncomfortable film i've seen in my whole life this was up there i had two very nasty nights in a row where i watched films that made me continually stressed out and uncomfortable and the lying that they do to the family is very stressful but from the midpoint on it's just situation after situation where they're struggling to maintain And I won't go any further because the film itself, one of its best aspects, and one thing that does make me wonder how it survives subsequent viewings, I wish I'd watched it twice before reviewing it, um, is the surprise element. It's such a surprising film. Now, is it as good as everyone says it is? Yes, it is. Um, Almost 95% there, I would say. Um, It's got an enormous amount going for it. I think... Uh, The director has shown himself to be very able, very imaginative, very politically minded. Um, Okja and Snowpiercer were massive high concept movies, um, very original films. And this is by far his most ordinary in concept, the fact that it's set in normal society for once. But that doesn't make it any less revolutionary. Um, We get the, um, the family at first, the rich family, are a lovely family. They've done nothing wrong and you hate the poor people. I can tell you that dynamic shifts over the course of the movie and I bet 
that um, the director actually intended that to happen. I wouldn't mind betting uh, which side of the fence that Bong Joon-ho sits on here because um, that's been an aspect of all his films recently, going back over the last decade. Um, the the story itself and the screenplay are magnificent. Um, it all folds together rapidly um, and it's very, very amusing. Um, I did see a criticism saying the acting wasn't knockout. That's missing the point. This is a black comic satire and the the characters are designed in that realm. So it's not a drama where people have to put on these amazing dramatic performances because they're acting archetypes and they're in the middle of a satirical black comedy. Um, so I don't think that's a fair thing to say about the film, but it is something to say about the film. The characters are a little bit more two-dimensional um, than if you were to say it was a flat-out masterpiece. And that comes with the territory. You know, The Simpsons is a satire. A satire itself works with two-dimensional characters, otherwise it doesn't work at all. Um, so there's a necessary element there, and they fit the comedic role very well. It is very funny. It's very imaginative in the um, progression with all the family moving into the house. I was very glad that it let that go by the halfway stage and moved on to new territory, where things become a lot more shocking and a lot more interesting because you because know, I knew the setup. Um, the acting wise, I don't. I mean, everyone in it is pitch perfect, but I would say that Song Kang Ho as the father, that was a brilliant performance. Not only is he sort of like this um, bumbling background character that doesn't really care and he's happy, and that's a big thing about the film. The family are shown to be happier at the start in their poverty and immediately much happier in this posh environment but that fades and they're left with this stinging inside them that is much harder to deal with and you almost wish that they were back where they started um, but Song Kang-ho as a dad he has the biggest story arc and he has the most extreme scenarios and he is the heart of the film um, he, the children not so much and not even the wife but He's the one that feels the progression of the story most keenly. Um, he's the one that goes from, this is great, we're fleecing these rich people, to this Faustian pact. And I won't go into the story because the what I, I imagine the first time you watch it will be the best because of the surprise elements of the story and how it progresses. It's brilliantly directed. He's obviously at the top of his game. Um, like I said, I've loved his last two films, Okja may have even been my second favourite film, so that would have been... And this would have been my second favourite film of last year, ahead of The Irishman. So that would have been three second places in a row. So I think he's got a good argument for being just about the best director in the world at the moment. And the fact that he focuses on social inequality and the environment and farming, he's pretty much got everything going for him at the moment, uh, Bong Joon-ho. Um, and it, it remains to see where he goes after this because he's covered so much territory politically and socially in the last three films alone. It's a beautifully designed film. It makes great use of space. Um, the house in it has become rightly famous, the posh house, um, as, as, as a character in the movie itself. Um, and uh, the, virtually the whole movie happens inside these two places. There's one shocking element that happens towards the end of the film which makes it all a lot more panoramic and involves the outside world a lot more. 
Um, like I said, it's so stressful to watch because the lies... I, I find it uncomfortable watching films where people are lying to get their own way. And the first half of the film has some of the most encourageable lying I've ever seen in a movie. And the second half is continually trying to avoid the pitfalls of lies. Um, so I was glad when the movie finished, but it did end with a wow. Uh, the final sort of 20 minutes... And to be honest, if I'm going to pick holes in this near-perfect film, um, some of the times things happen too easily. I know it's a, uh, a satirical comedy, but sometimes the lead-up to them moving into the house and, and taking all these roles um, is, is a little bit too convenient, as is some of the stuff that happens at the end is a little bit too convenient. And um, one of the big surprises was a little bit obvious for me, but I am really nitpicking here. I would say this. My favourite film to come out last year was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think that's a better film. I think that should have won Best Picture. And one of the reasons is I think it's a more complete work of art. Um, it's, I mean, the acting in that film is absolutely off the charts brilliant. Both Leo and Brad are magnificent and I've watched it five times and it just gets slightly better each time. Like I said, I wish I'd seen this more than once without the surprise element of the plot to see if it has got those legs. Um, but even saying that, I can't deny that the director should have won Best Director and the screenplay should have won Best Screenplay for this because it's so inventive. It's mathematically exacting in the way it's put together. And every time he needs to break out of the confines he sets himself for the movie, he does so with aplomb by a dramatic shift in what's happening, the tone, the environment, the pace, and some apocalyptic events towards the end that really broaden everything out and ram home what the movie's about. So I'm torn here. Um, I gave once a 9.5 out of 10. I'm going to give this a 9 out of 10, but... I'd love to see it a second time because it could be a 9.5 out of 10 as well. But I'm going to give Parasite a 9 out of 10. I didn't think it deserved to be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as Best Picture. I did think it's probably the best film to have won the Best Picture Oscar in the last 15 years. I can't think of a better film to have won Best Picture unless we go all the way back to, say, No Country for Old Men. And ironically, that year... Uh, there Will Be Blood, Lost to No Country, which is kind of like how I feel this year. That was no, no Country was a brilliant film that deserved it. I think maybe There Will Be Blood was a slightly better artistic achievement. I kind of feel that this way. Parasite, 9 out of 10. How are we? Oh, dear. We're down to 9%, but I've approached the hour mark.